All right, we're in Mark chapter 7. Why don't you open your Bibles there or navigate on your device? Mark chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 through 23. The topic, Jesus tells us it's not what enters from outside that defiles us, but what is already inside each one of us. The title of our message, Inside Man. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as always, we want to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us and to our church through this text, written so long ago, recording accurately the words of Jesus Christ, just as applicable to us as they were to any other individual in any century at any time, in any culture, because your word is alive and powerful and able to pierce between the soul and the spirit. And especially today with the topic we have, Lord, we need you to pierce between our soul and our spirit and show us what's in our hearts. We thank you and praise you. We do it in Jesus' name and those who agreed said amen. Lunch with friends after church sounds fun, but should you be concerned about the folks who are preparing your food? About 3,000 Americans die every year from foodborne diseases. More than 120,000 are hospitalized. Recognizing that restaurants and delis are the source of more than half of foodborne illness outbreaks, health specialists for the Center for Disease Control went inside the kitchens of hundreds of restaurants across 10 states, including California, to determine which practices could be making people sick. Here are three of their findings. Nearly two-thirds of restaurant workers who handle raw beef aren't washing their hands afterwards. More than half said they had worked a shift while they were sick. 20% said they were vomiting or had diarrhea on at least one shift, and 12% indicated they had those symptoms for at least two of their shifts. That's okay, you say, because you just go to the doctor if you get sick. Another study, this one by WebMD, said upwards of one half of doctors don't wash their hands between visits uh, with patients. In general, after using the bathroom, you'll be happy to know that one out, only one out of every 10 people don't wash their hands. However, only 5% of those people wash their hands properly using soap and washing for at least 20 seconds, about as long as it takes to sing happy birthday. So if you're in the restroom, or actually if you're anywhere in a restaurant, you can't occasionally hear happy birthday coming from somewhere, <laughs> go home. Now I'll tell you who you could trust to wash their hands, and that was the Pharisees and the scribes in the first century. They followed elaborate, meticulous hand-washing rituals before every meal. You might still get sick, however, because the kind of hand-washing they practiced was not for hygiene, it was ritual and ceremonial. They washed their hands to try to show how spiritual they were. One day, the Pharisees and scribes caught Jesus' disciples eating without first practicing ritual hand-washing. They thought they finally had something actionable with which to accuse him and undermine his popularity among the common people. Boy, were they wrong. 
Jesus took their accusation and he turned it against them. He labeled their rituals the traditions of men and showed how they are a hypocrisy that leads to a false sense of spirituality and to outright disobedience. His great summary comment, a true life principle for us to memorize, is in verse 15 where he says, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. We need to have ears to hear because while we may scorn ritual hand washing, we tend towards our own traditions of men just as easily, and we need to be certain they are not a hypocrisy that leads to a false sense of spirituality or to outright disobedience. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, how much do you consecrate external things? And number two, how much do you concentrate on internal things? Let's take a look at externals in verses one through 13. An old Pentecostal jingle warns you, don't smoke, don't chew, don't date the girls that do. What do you think? Is that good spiritual advice? It took a while, but you know. Some of you have got some shoe like, what's wrong with that? But anyway, switching gears now, we appreciate the biblical wisdom of Charles Spurgeon, called by some the Prince of Preachers. He was no fan of going to the theater. I'm sure he would have the same opinion of the movies. Here's what he wrote. As I look abroad, I am grieved and have great heaviness of spirit at what I see among professing Christians. A very serious matter concerns the amusements engaged by professing Christians. I see it publicly stated by some who call themselves Christians that it is good for Christians to attend the theater so that the tone and the character of the productions may be improved. The suggestion is about as sensible as if we were bidden to pour a bottle of lavender water into the main sewer to improve its aroma. No fan of the theater there. Spurgeon's critics pointed out that he probably said that while indulging in a habit of his own, smoking a fine cigar. I'm not sure if it's true, but the way I heard it, Spurgeon once said he would quit smoking cigars if his habit ever became obsessive. When asked to define obsessive, he said, if I smoked more than one cigar at a time. <laughs> another story told about Spurgeon, another smoking story. Uh, he met the great evangelist D.L. Moody, and it goes like this. Moody went to London to meet Spurgeon, whom he had admired from a distance and considered a professional mentor. However, when Spurgeon answered the door with a cigar in his mouth, Moody fell down the stairs in shock. How could you, a man of God, smoke that? protested the great American evangelist. Spurgeon took the stogie out of his mouth, walked down the steps to where Moody was still standing in bewilderment. Putting his finger on Moody's stomach, he smiled and said, the same way you, a man of God, could be that fat. <laughs> was Moody less spiritual for being overweight? Was Spurgeon more spiritual because he had no prohibition about smoking? The answers to those questions are intensely personal. They could only be answered by Moody and Spurgeon letting God search their hearts for the true motivations behind their practices. The thing we want to see today from the words of Jesus is that nothing external defiles you. What that means practically is that we need to stop thinking that we and others are either more or less spiritual because of some outward practice. Although this teaching can be applied to liberties like eating and drinking and smoking, 
It especially has to do with rites and rituals that people think make them more spiritual than others. I can only draw from my own experience, and that is uh, having grown up uh, in the Roman Catholic tradition, and I can cite the rites and rituals of Roman Catholicism. I was infant baptized. Uh, There's pictures of it. I I don't remember it, Uh, but I was there. I did go to catechism, said my first confession, had my first communion, and I participated in confirmation. And after that, I went off into being a reprobate like most good Catholic boys do. None of those external rites and rituals had any effect upon my heart, except sadly to make me think I was going to heaven because I had performed them when I most certainly was not. Had Jesus not gotten a hold of my heart later in life, I would have been in for a really terrible surprise at the great white throne judgment of God. When I was born again by trusting Jesus to save me and forgive me my sin, my heart was transformed. There was no ritual involved. It was a a matter of meeting the Lord. Then I experienced water baptism, confession, and communion in the ways the Bible sets forth as part of a living, growing relationship with the living God. And so let's take a look at verse one. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. This is an official fact-finding mission, or maybe it would be more accurate to call it a fault-finding mission. The religious leaders of Israel had voiced their displeasure with Jesus. They were trying to find a reason or reasons to accuse him. Their credibility was that they came from Jerusalem. These were the guys who had climbed the ladder and were deemed superior to their peers. You know, it might make a difference in the secular world where your degree was issued, but not with regard to the gospel. Having a larger group you minister to or being in what appears to be a more influential position doesn't really mean you are more spiritual. Those things are not rewards for your personal spirituality. God has his reasons for putting people where he puts them and none of us are climbing any kind of spiritual ladder in terms of being more spiritual than others based on our outward success. I always think about that and repeat that because we just can't get it through our heads. There's just something about being human where we think this bigger group, this more influential group, this guy must be way more spiritual than me or than others in order to be entrusted with this and that is just not true. Uh, God works in mysterious ways and in fact, some of the guys that I know who are entrusted with big ministries are knuckleheads and uh, it's so that the excellency of the power can be of God and not of man. Alan Redpath used to tell pastors, God spoke through a donkey in the Old Testament and he has spoken through many a donkey since then. (laughs) Only he didn't use the word donkey. Uh, Verse two. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is with unwashed hands, they found fault. They were watching their every move. I'm watching you, always watching you. That was their kind of mantra. Like it or not, if you profess to be a Christian, people watch you, and often it is to find fault. On one hand, it's reasonable to them to assume that knowing Jesus makes you different. It really should make you different. As to how different and what I do and do not do, that's between you and the Lord. 
But I'd add that my liberty to do or not do something should always be subordinate to whether it's going to cause others harm. And so there's no use complaining that people are watching you to find fault. That goes with the territory. Just know that and deal with it. On the other hand, we are all works in progress and there is always plenty of fault still to be found in each of us. It shouldn't surprise you when people find fault with you because you're not perfect, just forgiven, as the bumper sticker says. Not that you should slough it off and not care about it, but people are going to find fault. Hang around with somebody long enough, you will find fault with them. Unwashed hands has a special meaning, which Mark explains in verses three and four. For the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and of pitchers and copper vessels and even their couches. Notice Mark says that the Pharisees don't eat unless they wash in a special way. He's describing a religious ritual of rinsing your hands a ceremony that the Pharisees burdened the people with. An early Jewish document reads, and I quote, hands become unclean and are made clean as far as the wrist. How so? Pour the water over the hands as far as the wrist and pour second water over the hands beyond the wrist and the latter water flows back to the hands and the hands become clean. Now, I don't quite understand the whole process, but it, this is a ritual washing with a pitcher of water where you do one arm, then the other arm, then one hand, then the other arm. And, and so it's just rinsing your hands and arms over a basin. Your hands would not necessarily be hygienically clean. They would be ritually clean. In fact, you did not rub your hands together. There was no actual washing of the hands, just running water. And this spilled over to the ritual of washing cups and pitchers and other things with everything associated with eating. You couldn't eat without first rinsing your hands and your utensils in this special ritual way. Now, we frequently criticize the disciples for their lack of spiritual insight, so we should applaud them when they are getting something right. Some of the disciples ate bread with unwashed hands. This means they were growing in their understanding of their freedom in Jesus Christ. They had thrown off the ritual hand washing of the Pharisees uh, and, and were growing in that way. The Pharisees looking to accuse Jesus wasted no time, verse five. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat bread with unwashed hands. These guys, you have to understand, they wanted to honor the scriptures, and they did, what we would call the Old Testament, as the word of God. They're, they weren't saying the, the Bible isn't the word of God. They, they believed it was. But there was also the oral law, which was the interpretation of influential rabbis in addition to the word of God. They elevated these interpretations over the Bible. These additions took precedence for them. And again, I know you think I'm picking on Roman Catholicism, but it's my tradition. This is exactly what happens in the Roman Catholic tradition. The teachings of the church are elevated over the Bible. And so this is the kind of situation that we had with Pharisees. Now, in the matter of ritual hand washing in the scriptures, God commanded the priests 
who served at the tabernacle in the temple to ritually wash before serving him. The rabbis came along and suggested that if it was good for the priest to wash, wouldn't it be good for everyone to wash? Wouldn't it be pleasing to God? You, you get that? that makes, doesn't that actually make sense, doesn't it? If God looks and says the priest needs to wash and this guy's the real holy guy, well, then I should wash too if I want to be really holy before the Lord. Apparently not based on the answer Jesus is going to give them because in verse six, he answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, as people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. Jesus is saying, in, in other words, God never told you to do that. You made that up. He told the priest to wash that way, but he didn't tell you to do that. You're doing that and assuming it makes you more spiritual in the doing of it. Hypocrisy describes a stage actor wearing a mask to portray his or her character. You've seen the, you know, the drama masks, the humor and, and the sadness, you know, and uh, that's the idea. The Greek actor would come out on a stage wearing a mask and, and that's the character he was playing. Traditions of men are a mask that do nothing to affect the person wearing it. They are nothing more than an act. You even learn lines of dialogue that mean nothing. That was true of me with every religious ritual I performed growing up. I memorized ritual prayers and responses to questions like an actor wearing a mask playing a role, and that's, that's what ritual is. That's what ritual religion is when you memorize these things. They have no effect on your heart. They don't come from the heart. You just memorize the proper answer so when you're asked, you rattle it off. And I can, sadly, I can remember most of those and recite those. I just can't get them out of my head no matter what I do. Outward practices cannot affect the inward person. There must be a change of heart first, then there will be a change in behavior that is consistent with the precepts and principles found in God's word. Once you begin to establish rites and rituals that add to the scriptures, the next step would be to allow them to overrule the scriptures. And so Jesus gives them an example. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. And so he's trying to establish that this idea of outward tradition is not good because it supersedes scripture. And here's what they were doing. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. That's the fifth commandment right out of the Bible. Uh, but you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So apparently there must have been a discussion at some point in, in Jewish history where somebody said, I know I'm supposed to take care of my elderly parents, but what if I dedicated all my money to God because I'm a pious spiritual individual? Would I then, since the money is now dedicated to God, can I then use money that's been given? It's a designated offering, as you might say. Can I then give that? 
to my parents or use it to help them. And the rabbis thought about that and they said, well, if you dedicate it to God, it belongs to God and I guess you can't use it. Of course, the loophole was you dedicated it to God, but it was still your money and you still used it. And so it was some kind of phony dedication. It's It's crazy. And, and yet this was their tradition and so they were able to no longer sacrifice to take care of their elderly parents. And, and they were directly refuting the word of God by the traditions of men. They appeared spiritual by keeping this added outward tradition while you were disobeying a clear command from the Bible. It's, I saw your parents today, man, they're, they're living in squalor. I'd like to help them but I dedicated all my money to God. Oh, man, what a spiritual guy you are. (laughs) Christians have a reputation for spending a great deal of our time consecrating external things. It may not be fair, but most non-believers know us for what we don't do, for what we are against, rather than what we do and what we are for. Uh, You hear this all the time. Oh, that's the church that's against such and such, or where they don't allow this or that or where all the people, blah, 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 and stuff. And what we wanna hear is, oh, that's the church that feeds the homeless and gives out food vouchers, or does this or does that. That's the church, that's a place where you can get help. We'll stop by there. A couple of Wednesday nights ago, um, just an anecdotal story, there was a a young gal that came to the service, we'd never seen her before, and she came up afterwards, and she says, I'm on my way to Bakersfield, and I was at the Union Station, and I don't have any money for gas, and a lady was there, and she said, go to Calvary Chapel, they're having services tonight, and they will help you. And I said, well, okay, I guess I'm on the line for this, you know. (laughs) Who was that lady? Corban, Corban! (laughs) I'd help you, but I just declared all my money Corban. But, uh, and so, (laughs) the point to make here is this. We can't improve on the Bible by adding more restrictive rules. They thought, hey, if it's good for the priest, it's good for us. The Lord said, no, that's what I want priests to do. This is what I want you to do. And I don't want you to think that their ritual is something that will make you more spiritual. Our more restrictive rules and rites and rituals make us actors on a stage and they have no effect on our heart. And so let's look at concentrating on internal things in the remaining verses. Charles Spurgeon would not have gone to see the Pixar film Inside Out. Nothing wrong with that film, but he would be against the movies. If you've seen it, you know that it's set in the mind of a young girl named Riley Anderson where five personified emotions live, joy, sadness, fear, anger, and disgust. Why they chose those five, I don't know but they try to lead her through her life. And so they give you a look inside the mind, or we would say the heart of an individual. Jesus is gonna take us within the mind or the heart, but what he finds residing there in each of us could never be a Pixar movie. It would have to be in a whole nother genre. And so verse 14, when he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me everyone and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Like all overused expressions, I'm tired of people saying garbage in, garbage out. If you just said that, I'm sorry. 
It's a true assessment, however, so why does Jesus seem to contradict it? My first thought was, well, Jesus, haven't you ever heard garbage in, garbage out? It's a computer term. Oh, I guess you haven't. Now, Jesus wasn't saying there are not defiling things that we can take into ourselves. There are, and we all know that. Jesus was pointing out that no matter how much ritual religion you practice, defilement is already present in your heart. So these rituals cannot keep out of your heart what's already there, and and that's why they're ridiculous. You need help that a ritual like hand-washing can never provide. Verse 17, when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. It's interesting, this is a parable, Jesus using eating and our digestion as an illustration of spiritual truth. We don't normally think of this as one of the parables of Jesus, but it was. Verse 18, so he said to them, guys, are you thus without understanding also? Don't you perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it doesn't enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. Jesus mildly rebukes his boys. They ought to be getting some of this by now. They'd been with him a while and he expected them to catch on. You know, I I realized a few years ago that as we read through a gospel and we encounter, let's say, the Sermon on the Mount, and we, we have a tendency to think that's the time and place and the only place Jesus ever gave the Sermon on the Mount. But like any itinerant teacher, Jesus would go from place to place and he would repeat himself over and over again. And so a lot of these principles were already taught and he was expecting his guys to catch on. I mentioned earlier that as Christians, we are a work in progress. A key word in that sentence is progress. We should be growing, we should be maturing uh, at a pace that is consistent uh, with how the Lord is working in our lives. I should be getting more of what the Lord is trying to teach me. The parable was perfect. Our food goes right through us, having no effect on the heart. And so no amount of ritual washing before I eat is going to affect that because what's in my heart is already evil. So I'm at home last night. It's just a personal story. I'm always hoping Pam is not hungry because Pam doesn't like pasta the way I like pasta. And I have a hard time, you know, and so we, you know, it's, it, we're married, you know, going on 40 years. And so I, I try to adjust. And, uh, and so I always say, honey, are you hungry? Well, that means no, right? You're not hungry? Well, kind of, I'll get you a snack. And she goes, all right, because well, I, I want to eat linguine. All right, go ahead and eat linguine. I'll starve. I go, no, if you're hungry, I'll help. But, so, and I'm, then I'm, I, go, I got no sauce, you know, so I, I put together a butter garlic sauce with parsley and basil. Oh, it was so good ate like a pound of linguine. I mean, I was just sucking this stuff down, uh, moody style. And uh, <laughs> I didn't have an after-dinner cigar, though, so I, I, I'm clean there. And uh, I mean, I love it. I love, po- but it doesn't affect my spirit or my heart except to tell a funny story. It just goes in and it goes out and then I want more. And so that's the idea. But now there's a further conclusion here, and this is revolutionary, not just to the Jews who first heard this, but to everyone. You can eat anything you want, Jesus says, thus purifying all foods. 
he, in that statement, declares every food kosher. My Jewish friend, go get a bacon burger. Just make sure the food server washed his hands, <laughs> but for hygiene and not for holiness. And for the life of me, I know we always, I do the same thing, we always argue about uh, you know, food and what we can and can't eat using the Apostle Paul and his letters. But Jesus says it right here. He says, thus purifying all foods. Nobody can tell you that you can't eat something because the Bible prohibits it because Jesus just said, eat anything you want. Now, if you want to be a vegetarian, I'm happy for you. I've tried vegetarian dishes and they just don't do it for me. Quite honestly, they give me gas. <laughs> We're just being real here. <laughs> I can't wait for the Spanish translation. <laughs> Good luck with that, Alex. So if you want to be a vegetarian, and, and uh, that's great. If you have a certain diet regimen, the caveman diet, the Adkins diet, whatever, that's great. If you're doing it for health, for your own personal health, that's great. And you know what? You might even be able to convince me that it would be healthier for me to eat a certain way. It's probably not a healthy thing to eat a pound of linguine, maybe a half a pound, something like that. That's fine. We can, and, and I appreciate that you care about me that much. But when somebody tells you, you can't eat this and you must eat that because that's what the Bible says. Well, I'll tell you what Jesus says, the Bible says. All foods are purified. Eat whatever you want, period, end of story. Don't entertain any thoughts to the contrary. So, verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a man that defiles him for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, the evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. This would be no Pixar movie. This is X-rated stuff. While these words can describe outward actions, Jesus is talking about things in the heart whether we ever perform them or not. So we can't sit here and think, well, I, I haven't stolen from anybody. He says, yeah, that's fine, but I'm talking about what is resident in your heart. He starts with evil thoughts. William Barclay said, and I quote, every outward act of sin is preceded by an inward act of choice. Therefore, Jesus be, uh, be, begins with the evil thought from which the evil action comes. And then he launches into this list. These lists in the Bible, they're never exhaustive. And by that, I mean there are other things that could be added to it. They are representative of the things that are resident in human hearts. He starts with adulteries and fornications. Those are sinful sexual thoughts uh, of both married people and unmarried people. And if, if the statistics about Christians, men, women, and children, and pornography are even half true, then this is a real problem in the heart. Murder is anger that you find in your heart. Remember in the sermon, 
Jesus said, if you even are angry with somebody, it's like you murdered them. It's better to not murder them, of course, but you find that seed there. And it just pops up at the weirdest times. The other day, I went to the pharmacy, and I was in the drive-thru, and I didn't have any place to go. I wasn't in a hurry. I was listening to music on the radio. I drive up. The girl was nice. She said, you know, can I help you? And I told her what I wanted. She looked at my meds. She goes, your medication is ready. Because I got the little text, you know, your medication is ready. Your medication is ready. But the pharmacist stepped out for 20 minutes and I can't give it to you. If I could have come through the glass, I would have. <laughs> and then I caught myself. I thought, I wonder, I wonder what I look like to this poor girl. And then I tried to smile. I said, I'll, I'll be back. I, I literally could have killed somebody right then. I don't know why. It just, and I thought, well, I do know why. It's because I have murder in my heart. <laughs> Theft is the desire we have to steal. You say, oh, I don't have that desire. Well, you probably haven't done your taxes yet this year. <laughs> because it's a desire. Do you ever dog it on the job? Maybe you don't. I mean, you maybe have a good work ethic, but do you ever, do you ever uh, not work as hard as you're supposed to or you can? Or what, well, then you're stealing. You're, you're a thief. You, you can rob God. I mean, so this is in our hearts. Covetousness, that's a desire to possess someone else's property or even their spouse. Wickedness is devising evil plans, whether you carry them out or not. Deceit includes all kinds of lying. Lewdness ignoring moral restraint and imagining immoral actions. An evil eye is jealousy and envy. Blasphemy is defamation of character, uh, whether you ever give voice to it or not. Pride, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. Foolishness is disregarding the wisdom of God. It's just saying no to God in your heart and doing what you wanna do anyway. Now, if you don't recognize any of these things in your heart, I'm not talking about in, in your behavior, but in your heart. If you don't recognize any of these, then I would say the number one problem you have is deceit. <laughs> and you need to deal with that because Jesus says this is the problem of the heart. And it should be obvious that no amount of ritual hand washing or any observance of a diet or certain days of the year could affect these pre-existing inward defilements. And that's a good way to understand what Jesus was saying. Because we are the descendants of original parents who sinned in the Garden of Eden, we have a pre-existing condition, a sin nature that expresses itself the way Jesus described it. We need transformation from within. We need something even more than heart surgery. We need a new heart. We need a new nature. We get it when we trust Jesus to save us. We become partakers of his divine nature, the Bible says. God, the Holy Spirit, comes to live within us, the Bible says. We're empowered to say no to things listed here and elsewhere that are left over in our flesh and to say yes to God. You know, because I'm born again and I have God's nature residing within me and the Holy Spirit and my old nature is dead, it doesn't mean these things don't still exist within me. They do but they're rendered powerless if I will yield to the Holy Spirit instead of to them. 
Now there's something intensely practical in Jesus' words here. We miss it because of the translation. And it's implied in the bigger translation, the broader translation of the word thoughts. Thoughts could be translated dialogue or debate. Jesus was describing a self-dialogue, or if you will, talking to yourself. If you don't like the idea of talking to yourself, you do it, admit it, but if you think it makes you crazy, then I guess we could use the word thinking. And so the question is, what do you think about? All the things Jesus listed and many other evil things remain possible thoughts. They're in your mind after you are saved and you can easily default to them. These were your original operating system, so it can feel comfortable to indulge in them, and especially when you convince yourself you're never gonna do them. You're never gonna do the things that you're thinking about, so you keep it kind of corralled in your mind. Jesus says, talk to yourself about that, think about that, let's have a dialogue. Now, I asked a bunch of pastors this week, hey, can you give me an example in the Protestant churches of you know, a tradition of men that uh, supersedes the Bible. And guys really had a hard time with this. And so I say, hey, good for us. You know, we're, we're not really kind of moving in that direction. But then I realized something. Anything that we do can be ritual religion if we're not taking control of our thought life. And so you wanna read your Bible, don't you? Sure, that's, a, that's super important. And have devotions. And you wanna uh, go to church and you need to pray and all of that kind of stuff. But if your thinking is in these areas and you're not overcoming that, then all of that just becomes an outward ritual. It's no different than ritual hand washing. And so we laugh at these guys, say, look at those guys running water down their hands in pitchers, silver pitchers and copper bowls. I mean, these guys are idiots. But if our hearts could be exposed, people would say that about some of us at some time and say, hey, Look at Gene reading his Bible when he's entertaining all these terrible thoughts. Look at him going to church. Look at him teaching the word of God. Uh, and so that's, the, that's what God, uh, Jesus is getting at. <laughs> Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote a book called The Invisible War. In it, he described, among other struggles, the battle for your mind. And he said that battle is vicious, intense, and unrelenting. Jay Adams wrote a book. He called our inner struggle the war within. So there's an invisible war, the war within, but it is winnable. This is what I wanna leave you with this morning. All of us are relating to this. This is a winnable war. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we're commanded, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Captive means control, conquer. Obey means bring into submission. And so the Bible says not that, it says you can do this, obviously, but it's a command, this is what you do. You take every thought, like these thoughts that Jesus is talking about, this list and others, and you bring them captive to Christ. You kill them, you put them to death, and you replace them with spiritual thinking. And then the things you do have meaning, and they have power, and they're not an outward show or an outward ritual. You're in a winnable war, but you've got to realize once and for all, the real battleground is never your outward behavior. It is always your inner man. Your outward behavior is not where the war is won or lost. That's just a, a symptom or a smokescreen, depending on what you're doing. 
It's, it's what's going on in the heart. And, and not, you know, I'm not leaving us in this terrible X-rated movie. I'm saying we can win this thing. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You have everything you need. I have everything I need to say no to these things and to say yes to God and to walk in that righteousness. I'll close with this quote from Adrian Rogers. He said, if we stay in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, there won't be any room for those filthy, dirty, wicked, lascivious, lustful, prideful thoughts that bombard us. You see, God made us so that we can't think two thoughts at one time. If we're thinking what's right, we can't possibly thinking what's wrong. Let's pray.